0: This is a Sunday message from New Community Church in London. To discover more about New Community, visit newcom.church. Today we're going to be looking at names. Names. Do you like your name? Do you like it? Would you change it if you could? Would you change it if you could go back to you know, your parents and say, look, I want a different name, would you have changed it? My name is John Brown, which is uh, about as common a name as you can get. John and Brown, both very, very common names. My middle name, on the other hand, not quite so common. My middle name is Noel or Noel. We're not really sure how you're meant to say it. It's my great grandmother's maiden name. It's spelled N O W E L L. Noel, Noel. I asked my mum, Mum, how do you say this name? And even my mum didn't know. So it's weird when you don't know how to say your own name. But anyway, that's my name, Jonathan Noel Brown. And names have real significance. A name means a lot. And a name can reveal something about friendship. If you know someone's name, there's a sign of connection there. If you don't know someone's name, then it's a sign of, of distance or often awkwardness when you've forgotten their name. Or I don't know if you've ever had the thing where uh, someone has called you the wrong name and then keeps calling you the wrong name and you never correct them. Have you ever had that? That's when it gets super awkward. I had a friend once, uh, when uh, beginning of university, this is a few years back now, but um, uh, the first time uh, I heard it, she 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 said, hey, how's it going, Chris? And I thought... I don't know where she's got that from, but I don't know if we're going to be friends. And it's just a bit awkward to correct you and say, no, my name's John. And so I did the British thing and just said nothing and let it happen. Uh, But then it was a mistake because the next time we met, she called me Chris again. And by that point, I felt too awkward to say anything and just let it happen again. And so for three years, this girl (laughs) called me Chris. And to this day, she probably still thinks my name is Chris because I never said anything. Now, in Bible times, like in many cultures still to this day, names mean a lot. Names mean something. And it's why uh, we read stories of God renaming people when they've got a new purpose or a new identity or he's saying, look, I'm calling you to this thing and so you need a new name that reflects that. So we see it in the example of uh, Simon, the disciple, being renamed to Peter, which means rock. It's a pretty cool name. And uh, Jesus says, you're going to be the rock that I build my church on, the foundation of the church, a father of the church, Peter, you'll be called rock. We see it with Abram being renamed Abraham, on Sarai to Sarah, and uh, different examples of people, Saul to Paul and Jacob to Israel, people being renamed and every time I think about that, it reminds me of one of my favourite stories to share, which is uh, one time when I was at church years back, and uh, myself and my mate Pete went up to a lady and we introduced ourselves, and she said, "You know, what are your names?" And I said to the lady, uh, "My name's John," and she said, "Moses." And I said, "No, no, my my name's John." She's like, "Moses." I said, "No, my name's John." She said, "No, your name shall be Moses." I was like. Never met this woman before, but you know, I'll take it, I'll take it. She's like, No, your name will be Moses, and you will lead the people of God into the promised land. And I thought, "Mm, You know, I'm not gonna, you know, change it by depot, but I'll take it. Like, I'll I'll receive that. Whatever, I thanked her. She turned to my friend Pete and she said, What's your name? And he said, Peter. And she said, Pizza. He said, No, no, Pete, Peter. She said, Pizza. He said, No, no, Peter. And she said, No your name shall be pizza, and you will be different things to different people. To some, you will be pepperoni. To others, you will be ham and pineapple. Different flavors for different people. Your name shall be pizza. True story. <laughs> for some reason, he didn't receive it quite the same way and. the uh, We never did call him pizza, which I think in hindsight was a real mistake. We should have definitely made that keep going. But true story, I'm Moses and he is pizza. Now, names are significant. Names tell us about someone and and knowing about the background, the meaning behind someone's name can often reveal to us something more about their person or their purpose, And In this series we're going through at the moment, we're we're calling it Knowing Jesus, and it's all about getting to know Jesus more, trying to look at ways that you and I can get to know who Jesus is, who he really is, not who the kind of theories are, what people say, but who did he say? What does the the Bible, the Word of God say about who Jesus is? Now, Jesus has many names and titles given to him, and we're going to look at some of those today. There's so many different ones that we couldn't cover them all, but we're going to look at a few of the key ones. So first of all, the first name of Jesus, Christ. Christ. Now, contrary to what some may believe, Christ is not Jesus' surname. He wasn't the son of Joseph Christ. But Christ is one of the most common names, in fact, the most common name attached to the name Jesus. In fact, in the New Testament, the word Christ is used roughly 350 times. We see it all over the place. And the word Christ is from the Greek term Christos. Christos, which is a translation of the Hebrew term Mashiach or Messiah. And it means the anointed one. The anointed one. So if you hear the word Christ or the word Messiah, they're the same thing and they both mean the anointed one. Now, the practice of anointing someone, it's not something we see a whole lot in our culture today, but used to be a lot more common, and it's a a, a practice of uh, anointing something, declaring it, consecrating it as holy, as set apart. It's saying this thing or this person has been set apart for this purpose, for this holy mission, as it were, for this holy purpose. And what we read of in the Bible is instances of kings being anointed, and what would happen is oil would be poured over them as a sign of their anointing. And a key moment in the story of God and his people is where David is anointed to be king. Where David is anointed to be king. And God says at this kind of moment that his family, David's family, will rule on the throne forever. And central to the understanding of Jesus as Messiah, as Christ, is this understanding that an anointed one, a king in the line of David, would come and rule and restore God's people. That was the promise. That was the hope. But then what happens? Is it all kind of happily ever after? The Messiah comes and everything's all good? No. Over the generations, the people of God turn their back on him. The different leaders and kings turn their back on God and they go through painful defeat and division and they spend their time wondering, will the Messiah, will the Christ ever come? And this waiting and this hoping is still in existence when we read about the arrival of Jesus. It's why when we read some of the the gospel, the historical accounts of Jesus' life, Some of the people who meet him, their response is this. So, first of all, Andrew. It says in John 1 41, he, that's Andrew, first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. So he's waiting, he's been looking for it, and he's found it in Jesus. Or in John 4 25, the woman, the woman at the well, said to him, To Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. She knew that a Messiah was coming and says, when he comes, he will tell us all things. Now, both Andrew and the woman at the well were right. Jesus was and is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one whom they've been waiting for. And Jesus confirms this at moments such as when he asked the disciples the the question of who do you say that I am? All these people are saying this and that and this and that about me, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responds and says this in Matthew 16. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' response is, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is saying, you're right, you have seen the truth that I am the Christ. Now, what's really interesting about the name Christ is that even though it's used loads in the New Testament, during Jesus' life here on earth, it wasn't actually used a whole lot, and it wasn't a name that Jesus himself used of himself all that often. Now, why is that? Well, the reason is that people had an understanding that the Christ was going to be this powerful military leader, this conquering king who is going to come and vanquish the people's enemy and restore the nation. And Jesus' concern, and we see this in various instances, his concern is that people wouldn't lose sight of why he really came, that they wouldn't have a warped perception of what the Savior was really here to accomplish, And one example of this is literally just a few verses after the ones we've just read of Peter saying to Jesus, you are the Christ. So literally, the next passage we read is this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised again. That third day be raised And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I love that. I love that (laughs) Peter has the audacity to rebuke Jesus. And he began to rebuke Jesus saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, for Peter and those like him, the Christ whom he has now discovered was to come and to conquer, not suffer and die. So one minute he said, you are the Christ. Yes, he's, he's kind of got it. He is the Christ. But Jesus is saying to him, no, Peter, you, you get that I'm the Christ, but you think my purpose is to, 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 to win these earthly victories. No, fix your eyes on above the things of God. Not setting your mind on the things of man, but the things of God, he says. See, Peter, like many of us today, want a Jesus, want a Messiah who can give us health and wealth and prosperity. We see it in often the way we pray or maybe in some of the most popular preachers you can find online. It's like Jesus will give you conquering power over your enemies. You'll you know, overcome your oppressor. You'll be wealthy. You'll be healthy. You'll be happy all the time and you'll have lots of money too. And there's this tendency within us, as there was back then, to want Jesus to give us earthly treasure and goods and victory. But Jesus came to show that the Messiah was not to to be so and to bring salvation and victory in an earthly sense, but something far, far greater, far more important than any of their earthly needs. So Jesus Christ, secondly, son of David, son of David. Now, son of David is similar to Christ and that has a lot of links to the background and meaning. The people of God were waiting for this Messiah. And then the period that is covered by the Old Testament, that's the first chunk of the Bible, comes to an end. The historical period covered there comes to an end, and there's no more books, there's no more prophecies, there's no more prophets, and it seems as if God has gone silent. That God has gone silent. And the people wonder will God keep his promises? And they get conquered by the Roman Empire, and rather than uh, be kind of experiencing what feels like, you know, we're going to have more victory and more freedom, they experience less. And they try to overthrow the empire, and it goes badly, and any sort of sense of them having a coming king or messiah feels a long way off. And then seemingly, out of nowhere, after 400 long years, the most incredible thing happens and it's the start of a new story and a new book. It's the start of the New Testament. And the opening line of the New Testament, if you've got a Bible, if you've got a New Testament, the first line you'll read is this in Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And that whole chapter goes on to show that Jesus is a descendant of King David. He's of royal lineage, that he is a son of David, he's qualified to rule, he's qualified to be the prophesied and promised king. Now, what is the history to this whole kind of prophecy and son of David stuff? Well, the background is that when God, uh, God's people were in slavery in Egypt, he rescued them and brought them out into the promised land. And to begin with, they had no human king because God was their king. But they said to God, no, we we want to have a human king. We want to be like the nations around us. We want a king. And, and, And through prophets, he said, you know, that is not going to go well. But they said, no, we want it. And so he gave them their heart's desire and gave them a king after their own heart in Saul. And sure enough, it went badly. And so then God gave his people a king after his own heart in David. And David and his family line became central to God's promises to his people. See, God promised that one of David's descendants would be on the throne forever, that he would set up an eternal rule, an eternal reign, a kingdom that would never end. But what happened? Well, as we've already started to see, king after king came, and king after king failed. They were violent and power-hungry and adulterous and idolatrous. They rejected God, and rather than fulfill their role of drawing people towards God, instead they did the opposite and drew people away from him. And such hope was placed in these rulers, yet they kept on disappointing. If you ever read the books of 1 and 2 Kings, it's a (laughs) very depressing read. And you eventually get to one, you're like, yes, he's going to be a good one. And they all end badly. Even the best ones, you're like, oh, you were so close, and then you tripped over the finish line. I mean, just how relevant is all of that to our lives and our culture right now? Longing for and looking for a leader that won't disappoint. Every newspaper for the last, I don't know, two, three weeks, that's all we are talking about right now. We long for a leader who will lead us consistently, without failing, without doing things that lead us to despair and frustration. Now, whatever your political kind of persuasions and position, we're all in the same boat on this one. We want someone who can lead us well, and we get disillusioned when it doesn't seem to happen. But the reality is, I mean, we, all these people say, well, you know, we just need a new leader, a new prime minister. Well, the truth is, do you think if we had a new prime minister, we'd have one who never disappointed us, who he never moaned about, who never let us down? You say, well, if only we had a Churchill in our time. Winston Churchill, that great prime minister, the great Britain. Well, if only he had a Churchill right now to lead us forward. Hey, do you know what happened after the war when they had the first general election? And Winston Churchill was standing to be elected. He lost. He didn't even get voted in. Even the leaders we hold up as being these wonderful leaders all had their flaws and failings. But Jesus is different. Jesus is different. See, the problem with any human leader is that they will mess up. It's why history is littered with failed politicians and failed pastors, church leaders. Even the famed King David, despite his many qualities, was an adulterer and a murderer and made Boris Johnson look like a saint, to be honest. See, it's a stark reminder of how flawed each one of us is because the problem with each leader Is that they are a human like you and I, an imperfect and sinful human being. It's a reminder just how unable we are to handle power. It seems the more we get, the more it corrupts us. The problem isn't with Boris or Trump or Churchill or King David, the problem is in us, it's in me, it's in you. And this is why Jesus is so different. See, Jesus never made a promise that he didn't keep. He never made a rule that he didn't follow. He never made a decision that wasn't for the blessing and good of others. He was the servant king. He lived a life of perfect love. He didn't seek to be served but to serve. He was unlike any leader before or since. I mean, even look at his kingly entrance into Jerusalem. It's like Jesus is trying to scream, I'm not like any king you've ever seen. I mean, how do we do it these days when a king comes in? I mean, you see it in London. The queen comes in in this incredible golden chariot. Don't even think of coming there. Priceless golden chariot. Or maybe Jesus could have come into Jerusalem on a white steed and saying, Look, I'm gonna be a military leader and just kind of trot in on that white steed holding up a sword. But what did he do? He came in on a donkey. It's like he's trying to say, Look, I'm not like any leader, any king you've ever seen or will ever see. This is Jesus, the son of David, the servant king. And not only did his birth, his lineage point to the fact that he was the promised king, but his life every day pointed to it. He was the perfect, promised, and prophesied prince of peace. And he came to proclaim a new kingdom, a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is an upside down kingdom unlike any of this earth. One where leaders serve. One where the persecuted are blessed. One where power is used to protect and not to exploit. One where joy is found in giving and not gaining. One where freedom is found in surrender. See, this is the kingdom of God. This is the way of Jesus, And for those of us who live under the rule of King Jesus, this is what we long to see on earth as it is in heaven. It's why we pray that line in the Lord's Prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our heart's cry. God, we see the brokenness of the kingdom of man. We long for the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus is Christ. Jesus is the son of David. And Jesus is the son of God. The son of God. Now again, the name, the title, son of God, doesn't come out of the blue. This isn't one of the names that Jesus and the disciples came up with on a little brainstorming session one boring night. Now, this is, as you probably guessed, has uh, its roots, its background in years of Old Testament scripture and prophecy. And we read of examples where Israel, the nation, the people of Israel, is seen as the son of God. So, for example, in Hosea 11.1, it says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. And so Israel is called the Son of God. When, so then when Jesus comes and is called the Son of God, it's pointing to the fact that he is a greater, a true Israel, the greater David. But it's more than that. He's not just the greater Israel or a Son of God. No, he is a unique and eternal Son of God. He's been sent by his Father. And it's why at Jesus' baptism, we hear the Father say, this is my Son, in whom I'm well pleased. It's why Jesus says the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing. Because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. What we see is that Jesus isn't just another prophet or rabbi, another good moral teacher What we see of Jesus is he has a relationship with the Father that is unique. There's no one that can say the things that Jesus said about the Father other than him. That's why in Matthew it says, no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son. John, uh, the disciple, the author of the Gospel of John, speaks as Jesus is the only begotten Son. The one who has seen the Son has seen the Father, John writes. And as we read the Bible, as the story of the people of God unfolds, what we see is that Jesus isn't just the Son of God, but he's God himself. That the Trinity, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus is one of the three persons of the Trinity. One God, three person, Father, Son, and Spirit. So Jesus isn't just the Son of God, he is God, he is Lord. And we see examples of this in responses of people such as Thomas, who we often call Doubting Thomas. When Jesus is resurrected and Thomas finally sees him, his response is, My Lord and my God. And the New Testament writers, they refer to Jesus as Lord and God multiple times. And it's important we say that because for some of us, we take that for granted. But for many people, the idea of Jesus as God is something that's disputed. Or people say, Jesus never claimed to be God. Or the Bible never claims that Jesus was God. Or I have friends who would say things like, you know, I don't think Jesus was God. But I think he was a good person. I think, you know, he he was a good person. Others I've spoken to say, I think he was a good teacher or even a good prophet. But the truth is, it's important to be aware that Jesus never claimed to be a good teacher or a good prophet. In fact, he he kind of pushed away from those kind of things and he claimed to be God, which is why people wanted to kill him. They didn't kill him because he was a good teacher that they didn't really like. It wasn't like one day he did kind of one of his self-help talks and they were like, ah, we didn't really feel that one today, Jesus, so off to the cross. No, no, no. They killed him for the charge of blasphemy. That's why he got the death sentence, because of blasphemy, his claims to be God. And Jesus did do things that if he wasn't, God would have been blasphemous. For example, at one point he says, "Truly, this is to a crowd of, of, of rowdy onlookers. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And their response, which will make sense, is they picked up stones to throw at him, to kill him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now, in that moment, what's happening is he's saying to them, I am the eternal one. I am the eternal God. Before Abraham, who lived thousands of years before, your sacred father Abraham, even before him, I was around. And just to make it even clearer, if there was any shadow of a doubt that he was making these claims, he says, before Abraham was, I am. I am. Referencing the moment at the burning bush where God says to to Moses, Moses says, what is your name? And he says, I am who I am. No wonder they wanted to kill him. See, in that moment, Jesus was saying, I am God, and they had a decision. Either he is God, and we must follow him and serve him and live for him and give him our all, or this is the most disgusting claim any human being could make. Of us, as, as kind of Jews who are looking to God, anyone who claims to be him deserves death, which is why they picked up stones. Jesus never pla- claimed to be just a good teacher. Let's be very Clear about that. He claimed to be God. So, next, let's look at the name Jesus. It'd be a bit weird if we never explored the names of Jesus and never looked at the name Jesus. So, what about the name Jesus? We hear that name a lot. Do we actually know what it means? How do you decide what to name a child? It can be pretty controversial. People have strong opinions on baby names, don't they? We all know that. We all know that. How do you name one? It can split couples who like one name, the other doesn't. Well, thankfully, in the case of Jesus, an angel told the parents what to name him. I mean, that's pretty handy. That would be nice if we all just had that and you didn't have any debates or dramas. just an angel comes and tells you a few weeks before, maybe. Well, Jesus, or Yeshua, as it would have been, wasn't a new name, This wasn't some name that was invented just for Jesus. The name Yeshua uh, actually appears in the Old Testament multiple times, including with Joshua, son of Nun. That's the guy who took over from Moses. And it means the Lord saves. The Lord saves. And once again, all of these different threads that we've been looking at start to come together. See, the people of God were looking for a savior, a Messiah, an anointed king, the son of David, And they were looking for someone who would restore their former glories, who would save them. Joshua, you know, had been this savior of the people of God, and they were looking for someone who could save them from their oppressors. And then here was this moment where finally God comes to earth as Jesus. The moment where generations of weary believers had been waiting for. And what happens at that climactic moment where God comes to earth Well, he's born as a baby. He's born as a small child, an infant, in a manger, in obscurity. Doesn't exactly look like this kind of powerful savior. Well, maybe you think, okay, well, yeah, he was born that way, but, you know, Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the Lord saves, like Joshua, the mighty ruler. Surely, Jesus then grew up and trained as a warrior, And then the picture of Jesus is this kind of guy with a sword and a six-pack coming to slay the Romans. Is that what Jesus was like? That's kind of the perception, the expectation people had. No, does he go into training for battle and slay the Romans? On the contrary, they slay him. Because the salvation the people needed was not the one they thought they did. The story was so different than their expectation because the enemy they thought they had was not the true enemy they actually did. They never spotted the Savior because they were looking at the wrong enemy. How does that work? Well, what do I mean? Well, just before Jesus is born, an angel comes to Joseph and tells him this. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. Okay, yeah, we know that Jesus, he will save, great. He will save his people from their sins, from their sins. See, this, this isn't what the people had been longing for and praying for. Every day they woke up to the oppressions of the Romans. These horrible taxes. I mean, we, for, for us who've grown up and lived in Britain, we don't know what it's like to have an invading army dictate and exploit you every day. These people lived under that. Under that and they prayed for this savior, this Jesus, who would come and set them free. But Jesus came to show them what they needed saving from was far, far worse than any invading army. That the consequences of sin, the eternal consequences, are far worse than any Roman invader. See, in the 2,000 years since this took place, we're pretty similar as people. We see the problem as the same thing. We see the problem as out there. I'm a victim, There's these other people oppressing me and making me a victim. I'm a good person, but they're the bad guys. And if only that got sorted, then everything would be okay. But the problem is, like every king and every leader, each one of us falls short. We're so inconsistent. We're so self-centered We can't seem to live a week without doing something that's about serving ourselves and taking advantage of others. And the good news is this. Jesus didn't leave us in our sin and stand from heaven pointing at us saying, you disgusting, terrible, horrible people. No, Jesus didn't send lightning bolts. He sent himself. He came himself. God came as a man to save us From our sins, to bring life. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Well, how did he do that? How did this great rescue plan take place? Well, another name for Jesus is the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. Now, every year, the people of God would have to make a sacrifice. And this was a symbolic act where a lamb was taken, a spotless, perfect lamb, and the people would symbolically place their sin on this lamb, lay hands on the lamb and say, this lamb now represents all of our sin, and it would be sacrificed in their place. But this wasn't ever a permanent thing. They would have to do this every year. And there was a recognition that this wasn't a sufficient or complete sacrifice. And that one day something greater would be needed to fully make amends and atone for their sins. And at the start of Jesus' ministry, as John the Baptist meets Jesus, John declares this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So how did the Lamb of God take away our sins? How does this great sacrifice of the Lamb of God take place? Well, it starts with a kiss. Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, a man who Jesus had called, befriended, invested in, loved, served. He'd washed Judas' feet, taken him under his wing. This man whom Jesus had befriended and loved approaches him that evening, surrounded by armed guards, and an expression of intimacy leans in and kisses the Lamb of God on the cheek to mark him for sacrifice, to mark him for a rest. And then the lamb is dragged before the religious and political leaders. Jesus is given a mock trial. And the, the, the Pharisees, those who objected to him, label, uh, throw these false accusations at Jesus. And rather than defend himself, rather than uh, stand up for himself, Jesus says nothing. I mean, think about it. The one who breathed life into being Stay silent, as the men whom he breathed life into shout insults and false accusations. As Isaiah prophesied hundreds of years before, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a lamb that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And then the anointed King Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, receives his crown, but not one made of gold or silver or precious jewels. He's given a a crown of thorns, sadistic and twisted crown of thorns plunged into his head. And in this sadistic mocking ceremony, they actually put a royal purple robe on him, and say, King of the Jews, Jesus, King of the Jews, they bow down to him. They pretend to worship him before beating him with sticks and then tearing the flesh from his back with whips. And then the Lamb of God is carried away to the place of his slaughter. And then we see the hands that flung stars into space the hands that formed roman soldiers in their mother's womb his hand outstretched and pierced to a wooden cross and as his blood and breath leaves his body and experiences the most agonizing torture of crucifixion mockers gather around him and say to the lamb of god save yourself Get down off the cross, come on. And the Son of God, rather than call down fire upon them, calls down grace. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb, with our sin on him, yours and mine, our sins placed on his shoulders, experiencing the excruciating pain, not of the cross, just of the cross, but separation from the Father, cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, as he breathed his last, the perfect spotless lamb was slain. Our sins on him, paid for, The punishment paid for, not by us, but by him. Not as a temporary measure, but for all eternity. Jesus Christ, it is finished. This is Jesus. This is the servant king. There's none like him. There really is none like him. He is the savior, the servant king, the Messiah, the promised one, the lamb that was slain. And the key question for us today is, do you know him? Do you know him? Because the story doesn't end at his death. No, three days later, Jesus rose again and then he ascended to the right hand of the Father and he is alive, which means we can know him. We're not going through a history lesson today where we talk about some old guy in history. No, we're talking about the true and living God, the Jesus that you and I can know today. You can have a relationship with Jesus. You can know the Christ for yourself. You can know him. You can know him. And that question that came to the disciples, that came to Peter, is the most important question you will ever be asked in your lifetime. It's the question from Jesus that says, who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Who do you say Jesus is? Not who your spouse, your partner, or your mate, your parents, the person who brought you here today, but who do you say that Jesus is? Is he your saviour? Is he your Lord? Is he your God? He can be. See, just as much as, as we can get to know him, he longs to know us, to be with us, to spend time with us. He longs for relationship with each and every one of us. To know him is to love him. See, today we're not talking about knowing about Jesus. This isn't a theology lecture. This is an invitation to the heart of God. And there's so many names and titles of Jesus we could have looked at today. The Son of Man, the Word of God, Emmanuel, God, the Good Shepherd, and that's the amazing thing. See, a life with Jesus is a life of plunging, pl- plumb, plumbing the depths of who he is, of delving deep. There is so much more that we can know of Jesus. And I just want to encourage you, if you're, if you're someone who's been a Christian for a long time, perhaps you, you, you know, there's not really anything I've said today that you haven't heard before. But when it comes to it, Jesus feels just a bit more kind of distance or maybe your heart is a bit colder than it perhaps was two years ago pre-COVID. It's been a hard time for us the last couple of years. We know that. But today is an invitation from Jesus to say, come and know me again. Come and live in my kingdom. Come and walk like we heard in worship, just one day at a time, one step at a time. Come and walk with me. Come get to know me. And there's also an invitation for you if you would say, you know I don't know in my heart of hearts if I could ever say I've known Jesus. Perhaps you've known about him. Perhaps you even grew up in church. But for yourself, you say, I don't know if I've ever known him for myself. Well, today there's an invitation from Jesus to say, come and know me. I want to know you. We're just going to end now by uh, come in before Jesus. And we're going to listen to a song. It's a, a song I love to sing. It's the song, Your Name Is Like Honey On My Lips. See, when you know Jesus, there's just something about his name that becomes sweet to us. We long to know him more. And I just want to encourage you, as as we listen to this song, just on your own, as as Joe so helpfully brought in the worship, it's not about the person next to you, the person who brought you, your parents, any of these kind of things. It's about you and Jesus. This is about an audience of one. So we're going to listen to this song, and I just want to encourage you to bring your heart to Jesus, to say, I want to know you more. I want to know more of you, Jesus. Jesus. So, a song's just going to come on. We're going to listen to it for a while. And then after that, we might have a chance to pray. But right now, you might find it helpful to close your eyes. I definitely do. I find it so much less distracting. Let's come before our King. Jesus is here. The living God is here right now. Let's bring our hearts to him.